You're listening to the Comparative Media Studies Colloquium Podcast, a production of the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. Episodes are available on the iTunes Store, but we invite you to see us in person here in Cambridge. So get updates about upcoming events, each featuring top media speakers from MIT and around the globe, by joining the growing Comparative Media Studies community on Twitter, Facebook, and our website at cms.mit.edu. about cinema and the arts, about politics and media, and about the food industry. He served on the editorial board of Screen Magazine, was the vice chair of the Film Producers Association, and now chairs the British University's Film and Video Council. So his talk today is entitled, How Documentary Went Digital, The Implications of Informal Filming in Skeptical Audiences. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to be here. It's my first time in Boston, so I've been here for a couple of hours, and it seems a wonderful city. I've done that straight away. Can I put it in my pocket? Yes. That blew your ears, ears out, didn't it? No. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so, a very nice city. Well, um, talking about documentary, um, I think the first thing I should do is simply to, when this moves, show you an extract from... Um, one of the first documentaries ever made, uh, Nanook of the North. I don't know if um, many of you know this film. Do you? Acquainted with the history of cinema? Okay. Well, if you know it, I'm going to say new things about it. But first off, this is the only extract you get, so please enjoy it for all it's worth.
Okay, I was um, I was reading about how this um, film was produced just recently, um, and it suddenly occurred to me: well, what, why on earth do we think of this as being a documentary? And it seems to be the only reason is that well, you know, it dates from 1922, and people have always said that it was a documentary. Um, but by current standards, we would never call this a documentary. Um, why is this? Well, first off, it's more like reality TV than it is documentary. Um, what uh, Flaherty did was to go, well, he, he made it in, in northern Canada, um, and the first thing he did was to um, embark on a series of screen tests, casting sessions, to find the best actors in the group he was working with. Contrary to what a lot of books will tell you, Nanook is a fictional character. The main character is not a person called Nanook. There's his name. Alak Ari Alak. He's a guy who uh, died very soon after the um, premiere of the film in 1922. Um, they are playing fictive personas. Every single person you see in that opening shot um, is playing a fictive persona. They're not playing themselves. They're also not playing their lifestyle. They're not showing you how they live. What they're involved in is a reconstruction of how their grandparents said they used to live. It's a piece of archaeology, if you like. But it's promoted by Flaherty as being the current life of the Eskimos in northern Canada, or the Inuit, as we now call them. Then they were known as Eskimos. What, it, what these characters are doing are playing out pre-agreed events. And as you've just seen, this first shot plays for comedy. We see something which is strange and is amusing and ends, like all amusing things do, with a cute dog. So there we have it. This is like, it seems to me, Real Housewives of Atlanta. This is what... Uh, you could call assisted reality. In fact, the, um, the, the, the Wikipedia page for Real Housewives... I, I started watching Real Housewives of Atlanta and I couldn't make sense of it. So I went to Wikipedia and I thought, yes, of course, the, the, the showrunners will have written a good entry on Wikipedia, and indeed they have. And they use this term assisted reality. It's the first time I've met it and I think it's an extremely useful term for talking about what actually is going on with reality TV. Nanook of the North is nothing other than very heavily assisted reality. But we call it a documentary. So I thought, well, why is this? Why is that the case? And it led me to think that actually the history of documentary is, is a rather unusual history, that it has very distinct phases with pretty rapid transitions between them. And each phase of the history of documentary has got very strong normative beliefs about what a documentary should and shouldn't do. So we now look back at Nanook of the North and say, well, this is not what documentaries should do. This is not what we understand as being a documentary. But in the early phase, given um, the limitations of technology, given, given the form of cinema into which these films were addressed and the rest of it, it was regarded or regarded slightly in retrospect, since it was the first thing, regarded as a documentary. 
So there are strong normative beliefs, and there's pretty rapid transitions between each phase. And also, as a matter of note, there are two features about this. There's a, those beliefs about documentary allow a number of lesser versions of documentary, many of which are led by commentary. Newsreels, what we call current affairs shows, what you call 60 Minutes or something like that, a kind of factual program about current events, which is led by commentary more than anything else. And reality TV very often is very heavily larded with commentary, which tells you not only what is going to happen, but also what is happening and what has happened as well. So the commentary on reality TV is very carefully directive. So there's always a number of lesser versions in any one of these phases of documentary. And there are also always people who push the envelope, who try and do more, who try and work against the grain of the technology, against the grain of the kind of cinema which may show their films, or against the grain of the kind of television which may transmit their films. So the history of documentary then. Overall, documentary, I think, is, is what, what unites these and what is the, prog the problem of documentary is that we deal in filming technology, in video technology, with a technology which seems to give us a great power to show life as it is. But then when we try to do that, that very technology always gets in the way. It always obstructs the full realization of that aim of showing life as it is. And the various phases of the history of documentary are ways of dealing with this kind of paradox, this problem that documentary has, that the technology promises one thing but gets in the way of the fulfillment of that promise. So, just to go through how I see the history of documentary. The first phase, the first 50 years, if you like, to put it rather crudely, is a phase of reconstruction. When the reconstruction of events was the norm. So what Flaherty was doing and what people who came after him were doing was nothing unusual. It was the way of making a film based on fact. They were using, after all, a technology that wasn't particularly designed, especially when sound was introduced at the end of the 1920s, a technology that really wasn't suitable for going out there and filming, it, technology that wasn't suitable for going into ordinary living spaces and filming people going about their everyday lives or indeed just giving a simple interview. The technology was too bulky. It required, for the sound particularly, a large number of ancillary instruments and a very considerable power supply for the lights and the sound. So it was something which, which was a really constricting. It was a technology designed for something else, and that was fiction made in the controlled circumstances of the studio. And there wasn't much technology around that you could use to do something else. And certainly the real block, and it is always actually the real problem with um, film technology, it's not the pictures, it's the sound. 
And we, we film scholars, we don't talk much about sound. <laughs> we think it's pictures. We think it's pictures that matter. Actually, it's the sound. It's the sound that's the real problem for technology. It's the sound which makes all the difference. The potential, potentials in sound at any one phase are what really defines documentary. So, they were working with studio-designed studio uh, cameras with heavy blimps around them around once, once sound came in and so on. So it was really impossible to document events using cameras beyond the kind of events that took place um, heavily prearranged, the things that you do see in newsreels, the races, the beauty contests, the parades, and so on. And also, of course, the wars. However, most of, the, most of the war footage that you see from even the Second World War is reconstructed footage of one sort or another. So it was a period of reconstruction when the predominant aesthetic of documentaries was to reconstruct events. So how did they reconstruct? Well, a documentary film meant a film which was based upon documentation. It was based on evidence. It was based on events for which there were witnesses. People could tell you what had happened. Also, it was based on looking at the material traces, what was left over from events, and judging what must have happened. So reconstruction was something which filmmakers undertook honestly as honestly as they possibly could after a long period of research. And sometimes they went as far as trying to get people to replay themselves in the roles that they had performed in some of those events, or getting them to replay for the cameras things that they did normally in everyday life. So events were reconstructed as honestly as possible problem with using people who um, had participated in events or were demonstrating what it was that they did in their everyday lives was that the technology predominated. And the rarity of being filmed was a real problem. Because most people in the first half of the 20th century had had experience of being photographed, but had had no experience of being filmed, no experience of moving images being produced of them, let alone of seeing those moving images replayed. It was something totally new, and the novelty was, for many people, uncomfortable. It made themselves aware. So it was very difficult, actually, for directors to get people to perform themselves successfully in a way that nowadays we find it all too easy to get people to perform themselves. The other feature, of course, of reconstruction is that actually interviews are not a feature of those films. They have commentary of one sort or another, but it's relatively rare to find interview material, and it's relatively rare, it's extremely rare, to find extended interviews. The interviews were part of the preparatory process, were done and written down using shorthand, using notes, but they weren't sound recorded in a way that we now find absolutely natural. There are exceptions, of course. There's a wonderful film 
from 1932 by S. Fischub from the Soviet Union, which has extended interviews, which shows you all sorts of things that really the technology is pushed right to the limit of what it can do. Um, but those are very, very rare films. So that's reconstruction. And this is the sort of technology that these people were using. There's Humphrey Jennings filming um, on top of a fire wagon. You see the size of the film crew he's got, the camera he's got. And if you look carefully, you can see that there is no reflex viewfinder. He has a viewfinder on the side of the camera. So he can't actually see exactly what it is you are filming with this kind of technology. You have to set up the shot, and then you have to film it. Another real constraint on what we would call documentary filmmaking. So that's the kind of technology that a sound man there with a lot of paraphernalia behind him as well. That's the kind of technology that for those 20 years, the 30s to the 50s, was predominating. However, 10 years later, we have an entirely different technology. 16 millimeter film requiring a crew of what? Three people, something like this. An entirely different lightweight technology, camera that could be go on one person's shoulder, <coughs> sound equipment that could, if you pushed it, um, be carried by one person. A very different kind of technological affordance was given by the 1960s. So we move to a different kind of documentary. Filmmakers changed their practice very fast in the 1950s. The old idea of reconstruction is very quickly discredited. Instead, the cameras and the new sound recording equipment using tape document the events. So instead of the events being documented by written evidence, by archaeological evidence, as it were, forensic evidence, the camera is itself the documenting machine. The sound recorder is itself the collector of the documentation. We see during this period the rise of the interview as being one of the main means of creating documentaries. And as the period goes on, those interviews become increasingly personal. We get interested in who it is that's speaking, as well as what it is that they are saying. Reconstruction is discredited. People talk about reconstruction as being against the spirit of documentary. Television companies produce guidelines which restrict their filmmakers from using any form of reconstruction whatsoever. Reconstruction is largely outlawed from the acceptable form of what a documentary is. But this is pushed further. This aesthetic, using this lightweight equipment, is an aesthetic which says, we observe, we don't intervene. We let 
events take their course. The cameras will roll and people will behave as much as possible as they should behave in those circumstances. We tell people, don't look at the camera. Don't be aware. Don't show that you're aware of the camera. You saw the little girl, last one out of the boat in Nanook. She gives a broad smile direct to the camera as she passes by. Well, of course, in the observational um, canon, that's something that you really don't have. You don't draw attention to the camera and you don't draw attention to the fact that people know that the camera is there. In some sense, there is a pretense that the technology is self-effacing and those three guys, normally guys actually, standing in the room are self-effacing as well. Pretend we're not there. And it's a strange aesthetic when you think about it because they're still using cameras where um, every, what, 12 minutes or so they have to fiddle around and change the roll of film. They have to change the magazine one from another. So the kind of continuous filmmaking that we get with digital cameras, you know, you can roll for an hour or two, no problem at all. That kind of filmmaking was not open to them. This is still something where the film crew have to fiddle around with their technology and do something every 12 minutes or so. But of course, in a way, you know, think about that, and, and they did, it tended to isolate them. You know, they did their technical stuff in the corner. It's like, you know, the, the, when you're in a business meeting or even a faculty meeting and somebody brings in the tea. You all want the tea, but you all pretend that that person is not doing so. It's not there. That person is kind of effaces themselves, although they're clinking around and so on, um, effaces themselves. In the, I don't know whether this is still a ritual here. I mean, it's, it's dying out where I work as well. Um, you know, um, these are the dying professions of the 20th century, aren't they? People who bring tea or coffee. So it tends to this kind of playing with the technical equipment and so on is something that, that puts that invisible wall between the filmmakers and the events they're filming and makes it easier for some reason for the people who are being filmed to ignore their presence or at least to treat their presence as being of no consequence, which is more to the point. It's not that they don't know they're there, and it's not that they're not conscious that they are there. It's rather that they choose to feel that their presence is of no concern. And that's how observational documentaries used to work. And in making an observational documentary, finally, you let the characters speak. You reduce commentary to a minimum. And ideally, you have no commentary at all. So you reach the point where you have sequences in films which are two or three minutes long, not much action going on. But it does happen to be that magic bit of film where somebody actually says what their name is or are named by a third party. So actually, this sequence allows the hapless audience to be able to orient themselves within the film a bit. So observation, something that runs until about 1990. So how did we get so quickly from reconstruction to observation? Well, it's not only a technological reason, it's not only a technological cause, it's primarily an institutional cause which called into being 
the technology in particular configurations. Yes, they had 16mm cameras, much lighter. Yes, they had portable tape recorders, the Naga and so on, running quarter-inch tape. But it was fundamentally television which caused the change. And it was news on television which caused the change. It provoked a new visibility in society. The kind of being able to see ourselves and our world in a different way. Television news brought about, well, many more cameras. You know, more cameras were made. There were more camera people around, a growing core of professionals. And the idea that news itself was something that you chased, it didn't come to you anymore. News you chased. And that's something which developed in the 1950s and developed along with the developing lightweight technology which such practices called upon. They created the interview for news, the vox pop, ordinary people talking, just as ordinary people also appeared on game shows and so on. Ordinary people speaking ordinarily became something that was unexceptional in about a decade. But over all of this, in the move from reconstruction to observation, the values of journalism prevailed. News had called this new form of documentary into being, allowed it to exist, and news's values of showing events as they were, of reporting, of not intervening in events, was still something which formed the observational documentary as well. The other thing, very much the case with, with um, European documentary, people still seen as being subsets of issues, as illustrating issues. That was something that fell away. But I think we've just been through, or we are still living through, another similar break as that which was lived through in the 1950s. We've moved away from observational documentary. Our values are different from the values of the 1960s and 1970s. Our beliefs about what constitutes a documentary, of what's a trustworthy documentary, and what's an acceptable documentary, have also now changed. You can see across a number of different countries and markets a number of crises in trust in documentary, particularly television documentary, in the late 1990s. That's in, in cultures where television had documentaries. I, I'm teaching a course at, um, at, at Penn at the moment, uh, and I'm showing a lot of documentaries from, from European television, mainly British television, and, and one of my students said, yes, you know, it's, it's really strange for us seeing all these documentaries, and they're made for television. We just don't have that. That was his belief, anyway. But you see in, in a lot of different markets the old style of documentary becoming discredited. In, in, in Britain, it happened very violently in the late 1990s. There, there was um, newspaper front page newspaper headlines saying, can we trust anything we see on TV? Specifically, a criticism of factual programs on TV. It's connected very much with the rise of reality TV, the rise of what was then called documentary soaps, uh, 
which has become something rather more extreme since. But a crisis in trust took place. You can see similar things happening, for example, in Germany, where um, uh, a filmmaker actually went to prison for activities around faking of news footage. Um, and it's something that happens in other markets as well. Crisis of trust in documentary. People begin to talk about documentaries as, as being dishonest about the level of intervention that the filmmakers had in the events they were filming. The feeling that people have been manipulated into saying or doing things that they wouldn't normally do, that kind of thing. And then there was a counter-accusation as well. Documentaries are boring. <laughs> Very much in, in a more competitive television market, the idea that documentaries are boring became quite a dominant one. Whatever way you look at it, the aesthetic of ob observation was no longer tenable. There was a four-way process going on. Each kind, of, each kind of aspect reacting off the other one to um, produce a kind of snowballing dissatisfaction with observational documentary and the real need to invent a whole new aesthetic of documentary. There were big institutional changes in television, a lot more competition in European television and its documentaries, um, a lot more emphasis on um, entertainment, and a lot more emphasis on human individuals and their um, eccentricities. Mine makes the same sound. It's the only acceptable sound they've got on these phones, I find. It's, um, Second one was these public scandals across different television markets, particularly. The third thing was filmmakers themselves seeking to innovate. Filmmakers themselves beginning to be dissatisfied with the kind of aesthetics of observation. And the fourth thing is another technological shift, this time taking place beyond the professional industries and indeed changing the professional industries and our attitude to them. So what is documentary now? Well, film, filming has become explicit. We're aware. Don't look at the camera, it's out the door. Please look at the camera is more the way it goes. Please let the audience know that you know you're being filmed. Conversational exchanges take place between subjects and filmmakers, where in the observational phase it was routine for filmmakers to cut out their questions. Nowadays, they leave them in. The exchanges become more conversational. The filmmakers quite often appear slightly to be a bit stupid, a bit klutzy. You know, it's, it's a very common stunts for documentary filmmakers nowadays to be slightly the innocent abroad, slightly the naive person blundering into a circumstance. It's, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's a persona that's adopted by people like Nick Broomfield um, and other people as well um, in order to um, produce a particular kind of exchange which not only makes people reveal more about themselves but also reveals how they did that, how they were brought to that point. So it's explicit filmmaking. It's also filmmaking which is explicit 
in saying, well, this is all that we can show you. This is it. This is a circumscribed view. We can't give you a whole view. We can't give you the grand narrative. We can't give you everything that might be said about this circumstances, this set of circumstances. But this is what we know. This is what we saw. This is what people told us. This is what they let us see. The construction, as I say, is explicit, is shown. You see the scaffolding, you see the mechanics. You see how the filming got set up. You see what the deal was between the filmmakers and their subjects and the events they were filming. And for our part, we no longer believe that what we are seeing is reality itself. What we want to do as viewers is to judge, judge for ourselves, to work out what's going on, to work out what these circumstances are, to work out who's being truthful and who's being dishonest, to work out who's hiding things, to work out what the dynamic is between these individuals, to work out what their backstories are and what they might be hiding, what might be motivating them. We want to judge for ourselves. And we bring to this process, as indeed the filmmakers do, the values of therapy and of interpersonal communication. The values of daytime TV, sometimes I think it is, the pop psychologies that are so prevalent now. We've moved away from people as issues. Instead, we've come, this is a wonderful word, the peopleisation is a French word. The French have invented this word. It means bringing people to the center. It means using psychological modes of judgment. It means looking at individuals rather than issues. It means looking at um, how individual people deal with circumstances rather than those circumstances. It means, at limit, regarding your politicians as being human individuals who need to be judged by those, um, by those criteria and not by any explicit political programs. Trust me, say the politicians. I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm not going to make any promises, trust me. That's today's political agenda, peopleisation, it's called in French, because it's a real shock to an intellectual, so-called intellectual culture, like they run in France. Peopleisation, a good word, and it comes from the English as well. So, what has led us to this point? Well, certainly new technology, digital cameras, cameras that one person, like at the back of the room here, can use quite effectively. Cameras, as you can see, with flip-up displays, just like at the back of the room. He can see, he's not looking down a viewfinder at me, he can see me on that screen there, and that's all he needs. And that changes the interaction between a filmmaker and their subjects and the circumstance. It becomes eye to eye. You can hold a conversation and you can just glance down and check that you've got the picture in your viewfinder. Up before you were doing this, you had one eye to the camera. Nowadays not. That's made a fundamental difference in the interpersonal 
relationships that underlie the documentary filmmaking activity. A very simple thing. The other thing that's happened is non-linear editing, digital editing. Everything is now a document. It's a file. So there we are. Documentaries are documents again. But non-linear editing, of course, has other effects. Um, not least, of course, that many more people can put their oar in in the cutting room that they used to be able to. When you're just editing 16mm <coughs> film, it was all held in one physical place in bits and pieces and so on and only the editor and the director really knew what was going on. The producer, if they were canny enough, could get a reasonable idea. But when it went to the commissioning organisation, well, until they saw a rough cut, they had no idea. Nowadays, non-linear editing, the broadcasting organisations... The financiers can see what is going on from day one and can demand to see what the rushes look like and get copies and all the rest of it. So non-linear editing, oh, it's all magic. But it may, has changed the way in which um, documentary post-production is structured and has made um, it much easier for different institutional voices to assert themselves in that. So that's the new technology, but it's not a technology which primarily was a professional technology. The new technology, first digital cameras were amateur cameras. The first digital cameras you could get hold of in the mid-1990s were for the amateur market and not the professional market. We started filming with them before we knew how we were necessarily going to edit that material. But they were absolutely magic compared to... Um, the old analog uh, Hi8 cameras that were being used. So what we've got here, in fact, around the technology is something very interesting. The erosion of the real big distinction between the amateur and the professional, which had dominated documentary filmmaking until the middle of the 1990s. We have the rise of something new, another French word actually, the filmer, the person who films. Not a filmmaker, but a person who films. And, and indeed, in anthropology, you find a lot of people who make films. They don't make films for audiences. They make films as part of their field work. And there are social scientists who make films as well, other kinds of social scientists, who use filming as a tool. It's not making a film for an audience. It's filming and making a text. It's constructed into a text. But it's not a text which is made professionally for an audience in the way that the title filmmaker implies. So I think we have to use a new term, the filmer. The person who just makes stuff as part of a larger way of life. Happening all over in public relations, in corporate communications, and so on. It's just part of a larger practice of communication. That erosion of the professional and the amateur is something which has been enabled by the technology or has come about um, through exploitation of new technologies and indeed has driven um, the creation of more and more 
user-friendly, lighter technologies. And this has produced a new visibility, like news in the 1950s produced a new kind of visibility. Another new visibility is the visibility this time of the filmmaking process itself. We all understand it. Everybody in this room, everybody out there in the street in a society like this one, knows what it's like both to film and be filmed. You can say it's pretty pervasive experience. Going back to the 1930s, 1940s, it was a really rare experience. It was still a privilege in the 1980s to be interviewed for television. You know, you felt a bit special. Now everybody knows what it feels like to be on the blunt end of a camera and also to be behind the camera. And so everybody knows what the kind of, how the presence of a camera makes you interact differently, gives you a different way of behaving when it's pointed at you and when you're using it. A degree of self-consciousness or awareness, self-awareness comes over you. But everybody's aware of it. The process is now visible and known. And that means that we watch documentaries in a different way. We see them as being specific interactions which have been documented. Specific interactions. We're increasingly interested in the ethics of what happened. It used to be that filmmakers talked about ethics in the pub or in the bar. It was something, or, or when, when, when the going got rough, they had to go into their commissioning organization and talk to the lawyers about the ethics of what they did. Um, but it was something which was an in-profession thing. We watched doc observations and documentaries. Most people didn't really worry about the ethical questions over much. Nowadays, we talk about them an awful lot. We watch a documentary, we worry about what happened, whether the people were being exploited, whether there was undue attention to one aspect of a situation and not another. All those kind of ethical issues have come to the fore and have escaped into the public sphere. We have become a more critical, a more inquiring, and a more skeptical kind of viewership. But how much do we really understand? How far do we understand what actually goes on? Because, okay, well, we know what it feels like to use a camera, to use a camera on friends and relations, people we don't know, and we f know what it feels like for the same thing to happen to us. We may well know the difficulties, actually, of, of, of putting sound and image together in any kind of meaningful and acceptable way. And we know what it feels like to show those results back and to find that people react in a very different way to what we expect. We know all of that, yeah. But how far do we understand what actually goes on in the extended process of producing documentaries? How far do we understand the different layers of exchange, the different power relations, and the different and conflicting interests which are involved in the different stages of documentary filmmaking? And so, to conclude, and that's a kind of trailer there, to, to conclude, I'd like to go briefly through how I would understand those, um, uh, those processes and actually how I think um, there is still work to be done in elaborating 
our understanding of those processes. Because, well, actually, people make, you know, when, when people are talking about ethics, it's, it's quite extraordinary how harsh the judgments can be. It's quite extraordinary how, how exacting viewers discussing documentaries will be about what they expect from filmmakers. Is it really justified, in other words? So first off, looking at documentary shooting. If you follow Irving Goffman, this is a wonderful um, quotation from Goffman. He starts his book, Frame Analysis, in the early 1970s. Well, well, he says when somebody goes into a situation, they ask themselves, what is it that is going on here? What is it that is going on here? And if you ask that of documentary filmmaking, the answer is really rather strange. Who is speaking to whom and how are they speaking? Rather than saying, well, people are aware of the cameras or unaware of the cameras, which is a bit of a pointless kind of a question, who's speaking to whom and how? What's going on? Who is interacting with whom? Because the filmmakers themselves are conducting a particular kind of conversation or interaction with their subjects, which is not the sort of interaction that they would undertake if they weren't holding a camera. That machine is still there. Smaller, but it's still there. There's a particular kind of interaction going on. Indeed, the people who are also being filmed have an awareness of being filmed, even if they're behaving as much as possible as they normally do, even if, if you've got particularly stressful situations, they kind of, um, they're entirely invested in their interactions in front of the camera and not with the fact of being filmed. There is still, it's very interesting, the, 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 the British, well, he's British now, he's American in origin, filmmaker Roger Grafe was saying the other day, well, there's one thing I've noticed, is that people swear less when the cameras are on. They're not aware of the cameras. They're not performing for the cameras, but they swear less. So what you get is, is the kind of moderation, putting the best face on, the moderation of behavior. So you still behave as you normally behave. You still are yourself, but you moderate to put the best face on it. What's going on there then? Well, you know, you're paying attention to the events at hand. You're doing the interview, but you're also thinking, well, you know, I'm not just talking to that filmmaker, that interviewer. I'm also talking in the future to the viewers of this film in some way. So you have a double attention that you're in a circumstance and you're interacting in that circumstance, but you've also got an awareness that that is going to go, your behavior is going to go elsewhere, and your behavior is going to be seen and judged elsewhere. So you have a double attention, and it's a very odd kind of thing. You're addressing the people who are there. You think of an interview, you're addressing the people who are there in the room, but you're also addressing lots of different people in different rooms, in different circumstances, in circumstances you could not hope to predict. Nonetheless, you're aware of the eventual viewers. And you think, well, how am I going to appear? 
you calculate your actions to some degree towards that appearance. And indeed, so are the filmmakers cal calculating their actions towards that eventual appearance on screens somewhere or other, for viewers as yet unknown and uninvented. So what you've got is, is a kind of very interesting set, double set of communications going on. There's the communication between the filmmaker and the people in the scene. You've got the communications going on in the conversations within the scene. But you've also got the attempt by everybody concerned to address audiences, viewers, people in the future. And so you've got that attempt at communication out of the scene that is there present into a hypothetical future. And that messes around, you know. So you're not performing performance for the camera. It's a lot of, it's a, it's a sort of um, rather lazy kind of intellectual shortcut for people to say, well, you know, so-and-so in that film, well, they were performing for the camera. And that in some way discredits the film, or at least that person's participation in the film. But I think to say they're performing, well, you know, well, what are they performing and how are they performing? It's the beginning of a discussion rather than the end of the discussion. That's where things get interesting. Well, why were they performing? To what degree were they performing? What were they performing? Because they weren't performing as an actor performs. It's very interesting if you read Goffman's frame analysis. He's full of stuff about, well, what goes on, you know, what, what is the difference between an, an actor in a theatre and a person who is performing themselves in everyday life, in the famous way he put it. Because he's worried about having, once he started that performance hair rolling, hairs don't roll, do they? Uh, he's, once he started that performance hair running, it's running out of his control in Goffman's theory. And it's actually, you know, anything he says in life is a performance anyway. But theatrical performance is something else. You're pretending to be someone else in the theatre. Performance in everyday life, you're not pretending to be someone else. You're not going against who you are. You're not adopting another persona as you do in fictional role. What you're doing in some way is trying to produce normal appearances, the normal appearances which are appropriate for the situation in which you find yourself. So yes, you're performing, but you're not performing as a fictional character. You're, you're doing yourself. And in the circumstances of being filmed, of course, you're doing yourself in those circumstances, but as I say, also for a future set of circumstances. So when we say for people who are performing for camera, well, you know, of course, you know, it's, it's a truism. Or it's the beginning of a real examination of, well, how is it that they're producing their normal appearance of self? How is it that they're keeping up those appearances? Or are they failing to do so? And what are those moments where they fail to do so? So, that's what I have to say at the moment about shooting time is getting on post-production 
when you start editing as a filmer. Post-production, I see, as being a real divergence of interests. Because something happens. You move from interaction to text. You move from talking to people, working with them, cooperating with them, doing things against their will, cheating them, whatever it is you're doing as a filmmaker, all of that's over. You've got pictures and sounds. They're texts. And you're trying to create a text, an account out of the process, evidence out of the event. You're trying to create an object, an aesthetic object, out of what up to that point was a set of activities. And so editing is a break, and it's a break that quite often filmmakers find quite difficult to make. That's what they have editors for. Help them to make that break. Help them to see their footage as footage. But it's also a divergence of interest, which is quite often left unresolved. The filmmaker moves on. The filmmaker undergoes this transition, but their subjects don't. For the subjects, you know, they've, they've been filmed, and that's it. And what they were doing in front of the camera isn't realized until, until the film is in front of an audience, until the film is seen. The filmmaker is going through a process. The subjects are left there suspended. So sometimes you try and involve the subject. Sometimes you see exemplary kind of cooperative ways of making films involving the people who've been filmed. Very difficult they are too. Sometimes you show rushes and say, is that all right? Do you want, you know, is that okay if I use that? And quite often people show their final program and say, well, can you check that for accuracy? Always a gamble because people say, I don't want, that's terrible. I don't want you to show that. Um, it's, it's actually different practices in different places, in different you know, institutions and different filmmakers in the same country, you know, will we'll adopt radically different practices. There are some who'll say, okay, I will never show my fine cut to, to a subject. That's completely ridiculous. And other people say, well, I'll always do that. It's just a you know, matter of common sense, really. Um, very different kind of attitudes to this. But it is a problem. It's regarded as a problem, and it's a problem on both sides of the exchange. And it's became, become more complicated, actually, because, you know, what happens in post-production, as I say, with digital editing? It's not just the filmmaker and their editor, and maybe their producer, coming up with a film, which is then fairly kind of solidly set. The process is fluid. Different kind of people can make their interventions. If you're working in um, a modern um, digital workflow, it may well be that all sorts of people are working on your material, even if you don't know that they are. It gets that radical sometimes. The institutions, in some sense, bear down much more. And so you get much more in documentary filmmaking. Another set of voices, not just of those of the subjects trying to communicate with the viewers, not, kind, not just those of the, of the filmmakers trying to communicate with the audience, but also the institutions trying to form things to try and to get particular sorts of often quite kind of complex um, messages across. So then the whole thing gets kind of spewed out at the other end. 
the eventual viewers, us lot, for the purposes of this event. Well, we start from the other end. We start with the account. We start by seeing the text. Everybody else, you know, filmmakers, institutions, subjects, they've all been there in another part of this. All we see is the text at the end of it. But what we have, what was given to us, is a very particular kind of viewpoint. It's mobile. We can see all round. You know, we cut, we've got superimpositions, we've got all sorts of information going on in a modern documentary. Um, we get all sorts of evidence um, from here, there, and everywhere cut together to make the satisfying documentary. We are presented with a synthesizing view. But one, nevertheless, we still know and we're still told is a restricted view. We have a distinctive position of what I would call audiovisual witness. We're seeing events and hearing events. And it feels as though, in some ways, we're experiencing those events. But we're experiencing those events at a distance. We're experiencing those events through this mobile vision. We're also experiencing those events without any possibility of intervening in them. And also with the crucial kind of sensual data missing. We don't know, in the great example, we don't know whether the beads of sweat on somebody's brow are because they're telling a lie or because the air conditioning has broken down. Everybody in the room with them will know it's one or the other. But we, watching and listening, we don't have that data available to us. So our position of witness is crucially partial from that point of view, even though it is mobile and synthesizing at the same time. We can still shed tears. We still experience <coughs> a lot of really horrible things in a very visceral way, but it's a distinctive form of experience that we are given. We also, as we're going through, are trying to assess what we're being told. Who's telling the truth? What's, what's going on here? What of this cacophony of different voices, of different kinds of messages, of attempts at communication, attempts to get through to us? What of these are we going to trust? What are we going to believe? What are we going to listen to? How are we going to resolve the conflicts between them? And then beyond that, we try and deduce, well, what really happened? What was the nature of the interaction? What are we being shown? You know, you always think, well, you know, in any documentary worth watching, there's that moment when you think, well, I wish they hadn't cut there. I wish I'd seen the next half minute, ten seconds, whatever. What really happened? You kind of get... You look around behind, you look through, you look through for evidence of what it is that may have happened, you know. We think the person's drunk, so, well, what are the bottles on the table? What's the glass on the table? What's that going on, you know? Did the filmmaker give them a drink to relax them? Happens. You wouldn't believe it. It happens. But you look and you see, you try and find such evidence from around. 
um, because everything is potentially meaningful in the filmic frame, as we know. But in the documentary, it just happens to be there. And what do we do in the end? We produce judgments. We're very judging kind as viewers of documentaries. We judge the people. We judge the circumstance. We judge what drove them to behaving as they did. We judge their decisions. We judge the filmmakers. We judge the broadcasters. We judge the cinema owners. We judge everybody. It's our right, we think. That's what we do. So that's documentary today. Documentary is now a document of a specific interaction. Ethics have come out of the shadows and the in-trade chat and have become what we are concerned with. We're sceptical as viewers. We doubt everything we're told, everything we're shown. We can't necessarily articulate our doubts, although it's amazing kind of the kind of fieldwork that's been done on this, how, how articulate people can be. We often don't quite understand what we're looking at, or we misapprehend it, but we keenly feel our skepticism. We perhaps have a hazier understanding of the institutional processes that have underlaid the films that we get to see and how we get to see them, if we manage to get to see them. Our understanding of institutional process may be a hazier ones than the interpersonal um, processes that we're seeing on the screen. So, that's documentary as I see it. Just coming up for the hour here. Um, so there have been two rapid changes in what we see as documentary. From reconstruction to observation to the kind of explicit documentary filmmaking that we now enjoy. Those shifts have taken about a decade, which is really fast if you think that there are shifts not only in kind of technical practices, but also in what people believe. And not just what filmmakers believe, but what institutions believe and what people watching out there believe. It's quite remarkable how fast the change has taken place. And it's also quite remarkable how what went before has been explicitly criticized and discredited. So observation is no longer, like reconstruction, is no longer seen as, as being kind of quite proper as documentary, quite what documentary should be like. These are large, these are driven, these changes, by large-scale alterations in audiovisual affordances, not just technology, but institutions and uses, what we're doing with the audiovisual itself. So it's really documentary experiencing being at the sharp end almost of realignments of moving image culture itself. So this is not to do with postmodernism or self-reflexivity, I don't think. It's to do with something rather different. The changes and realignments in moving image culture as it becomes 
more democratic, more sophisticated, and more institutionally determined. Because one thing sure as hell has gone out the window is the filmmaker's freedom to make a film despite their financiers. Very hard to do nowadays, but of course, if you're not going to use anybody else's resources but your own, then you can make any film you damn well want. That's the advantage. But don't expect it to get any distribution. So, finally, many thanks for being here on St. Patrick's Day. So, yes, we have time for questions. Examples. Um, four or five examples. Um, well, obviously, Michael Moore, um, the explicit front of camera filmmaker. Um, where else? Um, I would also say the general tendency of filmmakers to leave in things that show what happened. I'll, I'll give you a very specific example. Michael Moore's a big example, isn't he? Very small example. French filmmaker um, um, called Depardon, Gérard Depardon, who, who has made a number of documentaries about um, rural peasants and the dying way of life in, in France. Um, there's a moment in one of his films where he, he got to know people over a long period and he just films, you know, minimal filming, um, but always kind of, you know, making himself known. There's a wonderful moment where um, he's filming and he has in two shots a husband and wife. They're talking and the wife just picks up the plate of biscuits and offers them to the sound recordist and to the cameraman. <laughs> and there's a kind of moment, you know, um, they both said, no, you know, you can hear them refusing, saying no thank you. And it's that kind of moment which is nowadays left in. That's breaking. Did you see the Chinese documentary about labor migration? Called, something that's called Last Train Out. It's about the internal migration. In mm -hmm. any event, at one point, including one family, mm -hmm. as the representative yeah. of all these changes, Fine, yeah. However, what I would also say is that the history of documentary in China is utterly different to this history. The history I've, I've told is the history of um, Western documentary. Documentary practices in, in China... Um, until the late 1980s was still dominated by reconstruction. And so the way in which changes have taken place in China has been very, very different. And the appreciation of documentary in China has been very different. And, and also the political place of new documentary practice has been very different. So, you know, I, I would exempt China from, from this history and say there's a, there's a different kind of history. Mm. Yeah, that could be. I don't know it. Yeah. What about um, the uh, film, uh, the documentary Inside Job, where 
he begins to bring in, you know, audio visuals. <laughs> import all these different things that, uh, you know, seem to break the documentary, you know, they simply kind of pile in, but they're incredibly useful for thinking about the film itself, so the film almost begins to provide its own framework for thinking about it. Yeah. Is that? That that that's exactly that's exactly what what happens very often with with documentaries now. Yeah, just um, you know, a film conducting its own meta language, as it were. <laughs> well, that's what Michael Moore does. You know, I'm going to go in. I'm going. You know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. You know, and then he goes and does it or tries to do it. And you you know, so that kind of internal meta language is 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 really one of the characteristics of this this newer form of documentary. Um, a lot of self-interrogation, a lot of inclusion of the filmmaker and the weaknesses of the filmmaker, the mistakes of the filmmaker. You know, it's, it's as though nowadays, you know, you haven't got a good documentary unless you show yourself up as being slightly blundering. Yeah. I'm not too, uh, too familiar with a lot of documentary history and stuff like mm. this, but have you seen um, filmmakers like, I guess, documentarians like Errol Morris change their style? They're still kind of making stuff today, and they've been doing it since like, the late 80s. Yeah. Have they really adopted this new explicit stuff in their new work, or they kind of keep their own style? Well, Morris actually was on the leading edge of this um, change uh, in a very interesting way. Because um, if you think of a um, film like Thin Blue Line, It's interesting to, to, to read when, when Thin Blue Line, a lot of people couldn't understand what the hell was going on in that film. Didn't understand that the reconstructions were different every time. <laughs> and that you were being forced to look at evidence in a different way. And so you were being shown things which were in some way fallacious. You were being shown lying images because people had been lying you were shown images created by those lies. Um, and that was a very, you know, that was, that was one of those moments where, where the kind of truthfulness of the image was put under sustained attack. So in many ways, Morris is one of, you know, as I say, one of the kind of um, leaders in this, and, and um, he now is using a, a really, um, you know, a sustained interview technique, you know, interview at length, everything left in, or almost everything left in. The um, ability to let people talk until they begin to contradict themselves, begin to revise what it was that they said before, and all the rest of it. The ability then to show the processes of, of, of thinking and of self-representation. So I don't think he's changed. No, I think he's, you know, I think he's, he's uh, always been there somehow. He's an interesting filmmaker. And that's probably yeah. something that the French filmmaker Marcel Ophuls mm. did with Delphine Carlos, for example, mm. you know, letting the, the, the uh, interviewee speaking down moments and they Yes. 
to ask you, it seems to me that part of your argument is based on the assumption that the person in front of the camera, the filmer, has gone through the same experience in terms of how the changes in documentaries have been going on, you know, in terms of film, but also filming, and so on. So can you talk a little bit about the tension if there's a filmer, you know, who has gone through all the, the yeah. past experience, and then someone in front of the audience who doesn't have that experience, you know, for, for example, an ethnographic filming, people in other hmm. cultural areas, parts of the world. Well, well that, that, I mean, that's hard. Um, and actually, you know, uh, ethnographic filmmaking is, is, a, is, a, is a difficult thing to talk about. So um, I'll give you some anecdotes. <laughs> um, and the first anecdote is, is, is about an anthropologist who, who um, did some work in the early days of the internet um, in, uh, on the, in Trinidad. And so he, standard field work thing, he, he, he said he'd go down, you know, down the street and he'd talk to every 12th person he met about their n knowledge and experience of the internet. And so one of the Twelfth people was a guy who was homeless and destitute. He thought, well, I'm not going to get much out of him, you know. Um, but he did, you know. This guy had never experienced the internet, but he knew damn well what it was. <laughs> he knew what it was and what it could do and what it might be able to do for him. So never underestimate, <laughs> as an ethnographer, the kind of um, ways in which um, people come across cultures which, which you think they're separate from. That's the first thing. Second thing is, is that um, um, ethnographic filmmaking has a number of very interesting rules, and one of which is, is that you, you don't move with the action if you're doing it strictly. If you frame, your framing stays, your framing the duration of the shot, even if the action moves out of that frame, or indeed, even if you think there's something rather more interesting taking place. The decision to, to reframe um, is an important one. It's to do with inclusion and exclusion. Um, and the kind of judgments you make on the fly, and that's what's important, on the fly which normally a, a documentary filmmaker is, you know, that's part of your training, as it were, as a documentary filmmaker, is to be able to make those decisions on the fly, to be able to move with events, to follow events. Ethnographic filmmaking um, is much more reluctant to adopt that sort of process, as I understand it, which makes it already a very difficult thing. But I, I would never underestimate, you know, the, the kind of way in which... Um, the new technologies, the new digital technologies, have penetrated into places where you wouldn't expect. Because after all, you have mobile telephones and so on being used where they're being charged from you know, solar-powered batteries because they're beyond the reach of mains electricity. Um, and they're being used for a wide range of purposes. So there's, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a pretty pervasive technology. That, 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 has, that has sprung up very fast 
Um, and we're still coming to terms with, with what it can give us and what it prevents us from having as well. Does that answer your question? Or does it evade answering your question? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, um, yeah, it's very tempting to say that YouTube, with with, with its you know limit for the, for the for the um, non-institutional user of ten minutes, is actually taking us back to the birth of cinema. So all you can do is the kind of early films of, of Lumiere and Melies. You can do do trick films and joke films, and that's about your lot, you know, in ten minutes, unless. You produce something which is um, because there's a lot of very good um, agitational filmmaking running at about ten minutes on on YouTube as well. Um, in terms of um, documentation, you know, in terms of documentary, I think you're looking at, and the difficulty of documentary for many viewers is is that you are looking at longer and more sustained texts than that in order to be able to produce the kinds of judgments of the um, evolution or at least the changes in human behavior in circumstances and so on. Ten minutes doesn't really hack it. I mean, so YouTube is, is a very particular set of aesthetics, um, which is why it isn't television. I mean, it would be very nice, actually, if, if you could find lots of documentaries on YouTube. But you don't. Or am I wrong? It's, it's an interesting problem because mm. uh, uh, documentaries, uh, you know, the, the formal definition is, uh, I mean, as you've shown, changing constantly. Yeah. And uh, what can be done in 10 minutes uh, is, in one way, not very much, but what mm. can be done in 10 minutes is visually can be. Mm. Yep. So, uh, it's just, uh, I mean, there doesn't seem to be any uniform aesthetic here. Uh, I mean, people are doing everything from mm -hmm. cooking on <laughs> to uh, showing their own suicides to uh, yep. uh, trying to do serious art. And, um, so it just seems to be uh, a pervasive visual form that. Uh, Who, how, how can you show you, how, how can you upload your own suicide? I mean, there's been a number. There's been a number of activities of that order, I think. But right. Yeah. So, it's, uh, so the aesthetic control and the mm. aesthetics yeah. uh, consistency is, is I mean, it's, it's absent entirely. Mm. Uh, I'm just wondering if you're if you have any sense that this is feeding back into documentary, or is it uh, having any any kind of uh, impact? Well, I think it's having the impact, as I've said, in, the, in a way um, it's contributing to an awareness of what moving image and sound do, um, what they can do, how they, um, you know, 
how they affect us, and you know, so so it's contributing to our ability to be able to make relatively informed judgments of what it is that we're seeing and what it is that we're seeing, which claims to be factual. It's one of the great things about YouTube is that it's actually, you know, there's no guarantee there, is there? You know, like, like if you, you know, if you see a documentary on TV, well, it says it's a documentary. And with that comes a whole paraphernalia, you know, a whole set of expectations and beliefs of the sort I've, I've, I've tried to tease out. But on YouTube, it's just stuff. <laughs> Unless somebody actually claims the title of documentary for it, which some do and not many do, you know. So it's just stuff there. Its status is very pleasingly uncertain. Yeah. Uh, I just had a question about mm. your assumption uh, throughout this seems to be that uh, uh, documentaries are deliberately shot um, and under the control of uh, the images are under the control of uh, a limited set of people. But most documentaries that, that I've seen are assembled. And, and it seems to me that they're very much influenced by the available material. Uh, when they're assembled, and, and, and back in the 70s when I first uh, was exposed to how local news was put together, I was shocked to find that a great deal of the footage was just sort of random, mm. and and the, uh, a news program was put together with whatever was available, yep. and, 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 and some meaning was sort of, uh, you know, uh, boiled up out of mm. whatever was available. Yeah. But what you're talking about is, is, is a particular genre of documentary which uh, is, is kind of, you know, using archival film or found footage. Um, you know, entire channels and devoted to this called History Channel and so on and so forth, called Geographic as well. You know, um, that is a thriving kind of subgenre. Um, and it has slightly different rules in that very often the images which are being put together are stripped of their absolute specificity. You don't know where they came from. You, know, you don't know what they're of and you're not being asked to believe that they're of anything in particular because they are of something in general. They are images which illustrate the point that's being made, which show you the kind of circumstances, the kind of people, the kind of events, but not actually the specific events. And that's what happens with a lot of archival footage, is it kind of gets drained of its absolute specificity. And um, it's a different kind of documentary filmmaking. Very much, as I say, it's one of those ones that also exists, very much more led by commentary, or forms of commentary, or um, what is effectively commentary structured out of interviews with experts, or maybe people who were there at the time, witnesses. A particular kind of filmmaking. But what those people are saying is not really kind of <coughs> interrogated for its truth value to any great extent, uh, you know, unlike the kind of Errol Morris form of filmmaking. 
where you say, well, are they speaking the truth or not? No, you take it that, you know, what they're saying is, is true enough for our needs right now. It's a different kind of documentary, in short. And it's very different from, you know, well, you know, in, in those circumstances, I tend to defend reality TV <laughs> in the sense that at least it, it, it um, you can, if you're careful with this stuff, begin to see clues about something else, about the real lives of these people behind the kind of confection that they've agreed to um, put forward for the camera and the kind of things that they've been invited to and they've agreed to play out. You can nevertheless see a kind of little residuum of, of, of who they really are, even if they're real housewives in Atlanta, which is I'm very difficult, actually. <laughs> Other kinds of reality TV, there's more there. You know, you suddenly get the clue. You suddenly get that kind of couple of words that says, oh, yeah, well, you know, Somebody says, well, it was when my baby died I started behaving. What? You know. <laughs> Suddenly motive appears. Not interrogated by the show, but you can take that piece of information away and do with it what you want. Because you're a skeptical and judging viewer. So, anything else? I think all my controllers have left the room. <laughs> so... Thank you all very much for coming. <laughs> Thank you. Bye.